podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So today, I asked for questions on Patreon, and uh, but I had to record a couple of days early. And so there weren't as many people coming through on Patreon. And so what ended up happening was that I had to... Um, uh, ask also on my emailer. So if you don't know, I have an emailer. It's called, what's it called? Um, why don't I know the name of my emailer? Um, it's called wickets at uh, wickets.substack.com. Um, Jared Kimber's Sports Almanac or whatever it's called. Uh, but yeah, you can find that there, blah, 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 um, and go. And so I just asked people, asked me some questions. So we've got some questions from some other people. But I'll get through the Patreons first because they were the first ones I opened and I seem to have made the font bigger. James says, in the first season of World Series Creek, the West Indies players were eligible to be picked for the World Eleven Super Tests. Was this World Eleven the greatest side ever to be assembled? All right, so we've got Gordon Greenwich, Barry Richards, Viv Richards, uh, Clive Lloyd, Asif Iqbal, Tony Gregg, Imran Khan, Alan Knott, Andy Roberts, Wayne Daniel, Derek Underwood. Uh Roy Fredericks, Mike Proctor, and Joel Garner played in the first test, but arrested for this one. Z Zahi Abbas played in the third super test, not the first two. I don't know if this is the best team ever assembled. Because of Tony Gregg and Imran Khan, it has more bowling than a West Indies or an Australian great team would have. The top three is incredible. But how do we really feel about Lloyd at four, Asafik Bell at five, Tony Gregg at six, and Imran Khan at seven, Alan not? It's good. I think there's been teams with stronger than that. And then you've got Andy Roberts, Wayne Daniel, and Derek Underwood. Again, very all very good players, but I'm not sure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm certain that there's been better um, World Elevens picked. Now, whether they've been picked for test matches is interesting. But I do wonder if the very strongest 11 of West Indies or um, Australia might pip this anyway, just even, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. However, if you put Roy Fredericks, Mike Proctor, or maybe you don't need Proctor, but if you put Roy Fredericks, Zahir Abbas, and Joel Garner into this team, I wonder if then it becomes uh, the best team ever. But it's there and thereabouts, James. It's a great question. Satchmo says, is the current South African attack with five frontline bowls superior to the Australian one, which only has four? Yes. Um, they've got more options with their spin. They can spin it most different directions as well uh, with Harma and uh, Keshev Maharaj. They still have Shamsi, who I think still has a better first-class bowling average than Simon Harma, um, available to them as well on the spin. Uh, on the seam bowling, obviously, they've got absolute depth there. Different kind of bowling attack. Um, uh in many ways, but, um, you know, they cover a lot of the things that Australia have. That said, would you rather have your fifth bowler be Cameron Green and know that he can bat at number six, or would you rather have your fifth bowler be Marco or Marco Janssen or Keshav Maharaj and know that you basically finish batting at, num at, at the sixth position? 
So yes, it's a, it is a stronger bowling attack, but is it a stronger team? Um, based on that, I don't know. Uh, it's I think it's a really interesting thing that they've decided that Maharaj Rabada, Janssen, Am I missing anyone else? Maybe even Nokia can hold the bat a little bit uh, and do, and do things with the bat, which which means that they're kind of taking a huge punt on it. But it means making runs against them shouldn't be easy. But I think it would make more sense if South Africa had a really strong batting lineup, and they don't. So look, I find the thing I, I find it very interesting that the whole I, and I will be doing something on this. I just haven't got around to it yet, but um. I, I like it hasn't got as much press as you know baseball. I can't think of that many teams who you know. I mean, I could be wrong. But I don't see. I don't see Marco Janssen as being an all rounder in Test cricket over the next three years. I don't think that means he will not be an all rounder. I don't think he'll ever be a number seven though. Maybe I'm wrong again. Um, uh, certainly, I don't see him being a consistent number seven over the next couple of years. So he came in at number six the other day, of course. So that was even funnier. Uh, Ian says, as associate nations grow and develop, where is the line between benefit and hindrance of having lots of heritage players, South African-born Dutch players, in the side? I mean, England has a lot, Ian, so, (laughs) I mean, it seems to help them. There is a marketing problem that does come about from that. There is certainly, if you've got no players coming in from local systems, you wonder how sustainable that is. We've certainly seen things like, you know, uh, what's his name? Picky France uh, in in Namibia is a different kind of situation where you have the one black player who doesn't do anything. We've had that um, in the UAE with, you know, local-born players. I'm trying to think of Oman. I've had a local-born player who perhaps wasn't good enough to be in their side as well. Um, so there are certainly times when there's a token element to it and that token is worse but I think if, if a team is developing, chances are it's going to be developing at least in part because of the um, that cricket is getting bigger in that country. As cricket get as cricket gets bigger in that country, more people will come in to play cricket in that country. More of them will be naturalised. Or, you know, the situation of the Dutch team, the Irish team, the Scottish team. You know, they are they, as they get bigger, people with passports who can play for those teams reach out and so they are strengthening their team they're strengthening you know if, if you have even if they don't play a lot of those guys are strengthening the club cricket scene um you know the i suppose now the professional scene in somewhere like ireland all those sorts of things i do understand what you're saying ian but realistically the best thing to do is get cricket really strong um you know in south africa you could have had the same conversation in, you know, the 1800s or 1900s in South Africa that a lot of the players were basically English. Over time, you build a culture and then a players start to come more naturally. Having said all that, A, international cricket may be dying, um, but B, um, you know, the way the world is now, I think that all those teams will continue to get players from overseas. So I don't think that will ever stop anymore, if we're being honest. Will says, uh, do you think the failure to have regular India-Pakistan test series has contributed to test cricket falling by other formats in, in those countries? For 15 years, the two nations have only met in white ball cricket. Uh, ooh. Yes, I suppose. You know, I, I, I remember Ishant Sharma, that series. Is that the last one? I think it was. 
the last test series. So it was right at the start of my career. I don't think that was as big as some of the India-Australia series. Certainly in India, I think having Pakistan, India, sorry, having Pakistan, Australia and England would help. But I think test cricket was... um, I think Test cricket was struggling in some of those countries when India and Pakistan were playing each other, right? So, um, no, I suppose is actually the answer to your question. I don't think that was the case. Um, India played Pakistan all the way through the 90s and barely played any Test matches, right? So, uh, no, I don't think that's right. Interesting question, though. Roger says, what do you make of Stokes' ultra-aggressive batting approach since he has become skipper, essential to the tone philosophy of the new coaching captaincy, or is it likely to end in tears? I think it's probably likely to end in tears. I think it's unnecessary. I, 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 find, I sometimes feel, and I don't think I've ever written about this, or maybe I have, he kind of has like these three different modes. He has absolute block, he has absolute attack and he has that sort of middle ground where you, he f- you feel like he can hit a single off every single ball, but he's not really thinking of anything other than singles. And I wonder how much of it is because he's an all-rounder and he maybe hasn't developed mentally the way that batters sometimes do. Um, but he does seem to, and there's a reason he doesn't average over 40 in test cricket, right? And, and will never average over 45 probably in test cricket or even anywhere close to it at this point. And it is in part because of the mindsets that I think he gets himself into. I don't think he has, he has the ability to gear up, gear down, gear sideways, uh, do a little bit of attack but not fully attack, or do a little bit of defense but still look for singles. You know, it's quite often you look up at he's like zero off 18 balls. It's not how batters bat. Um, and there's this sort of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right word, this sort of muscular way he thinks about batting. Look, I like that. I mean, if they're going to go all in on this, then certainly there needs to be, he does need to set it to a certain point. He needs to back himself. And I remember when Scotland started attacking at the top a lot more, um, the Scottish players would talk about how, uh, you know, Kyle Kutzer would, the fact that he was willing to do it meant that they felt more comfortable because he was going to fail as well. I think, I'm trying to remember if that conversation was correct, but I, I think that's how I remember that conversation going. So with that, I kind of like, Stokes doing that but I don't think they're getting as many runs out of him as they should be at the moment because you know the Shardul Takur shot is the one that sticks out for me I just Shardul gives you so many runs I don't know why you would need to play him in that way there, there are bowlers that maybe he does need to attack Stokes so yeah I, I think I think at this stage it's it's bordering on reckless but let's say he's reckless for seven tests and they win five of them right um but it actually does change the tone of the team. That's probably worth it. I think that's fair. Ross, uh, sorry, Aditya says, how do you judge Michael Clark's career? He had one of the best starts to his test career in recent memory. His peak in 2012 was better than others, but still doesn't figure in the greatest strain test batters discussion. Does he below in a tier below Bradman Smith Ponting? Um, or would you rate others like Chapel, Harvey, Border and more above him? Yeah, I would have all of those above him. Um, I certainly wouldn't have him in the Bradman Smith Ponting um, uh, area. Uh, I think he. I think if you look back at his career now, his numbers are inflated by the fact he basically only batted in the best um, era for batting. I think he worked everything out very late in his career, and he was spectacular when he did that. But I think if you look at the majority of the other players, then perhaps war aside, um, they were good for the. They were outstanding for the, you know, a huge part of their career and played for very long careers. 
Uh, what else do I think about Michael Clark? I think he didn't move up the order, which is probably something you could say for maybe maybe for war and border. I think that's right. I, I can't remember if border it, how often he batted higher up in the order. Um, uh, one thing I would say for Clark is I thought he batted exceptionally with a bad back in a way that Kevin Peterson could not. I said Kevin Peterson, Michael Atherton could not. Really hard. There's a certain point where your back sort of goes as a batter. Um, and it is very, very hard for modern play, uh, for batters to continue to bat at their same level. So I think that um, he did that very well. But yeah, I don't think there's a single player that you've mentioned there, um, considering the the easy batting era that he had, the easier ride he had into the team than some of those other players as well. Uh, the you know, and everything, and the easier batting position than he had than some of those players. I don't think he's above them. So where where do you rank him then? Um, you probably have him on a similar level to, let's say, Matthew Hayden. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, maybe someone like Sid Barnes, who we didn't quite see the best of, um, uh, but we certainly know that he was a fantastic player. Maybe on that Clem Hill level, uh, better than Ian Chappell with the bat, probably. Um, uh, all things considered. Um, but maybe Ian Chappell got more more out of himself, and of course, if you look at Ian Chappell's record, you have to factor in the um, uh, the fact that a lot of his best batting was done outside of Test cricket. Um, sadly for him, but yeah, no, it's, it's. I think he's just he's certainly for me he's outside that top tier. I think he had more talent than some of those players in that top tier. But I think it took him a long time to work out the mental side of things, the consistent run scoring side of things, and to fulfill his his top level talent but I, I do give him excellent extra credit for um the ability to play with a bad back because i know how much it restricts a lot of top level players james says can ball temporarily be confidently inferred from changes in ball tracking data um and if it can is there a lot of it going on officially undetected yeah ball tracking data yes i suppose i think crickfish might have done something on this that there's absolutely no doubt that the ball is reverse swinging less than it used to, but that's also because teams are preparing it for a wobble ball now and they don't want it to go uh, dodgy on one side. They want the seam um, to be the most important thing. Um, uh, but yes, I think I've said before many times that probably 80% of the time when the ball is reverse swung, someone has done something illegal. It doesn't always happen. There are pitches that help it. It, it sometimes you know, there are stories of it happening, not naturally, but almost naturally. Um, and there are sometimes when you don't need to do anything dodgy. But having talked to many of the world's best bowlers who have done reverse swing, they'll tell you that usually something happens to the ball that is not completely within the laws of the game. Uh, of the international players you've met, which ones have the greatest contrast between their on and off field personalities? Ooh, okay. Wow. Interesting question from James there. Um, Biggest contrast between their on and off field personalities. I mean, Raul Dravid comes to mind, but in some ways he's still Raul Dravid off the field. Mitch Johnson was one. Mitch Johnson was certainly one. Steve Harmison might be another one, actually. Um, so two sort of bowlers that you kind of had their best days and their worst days, and we kind of thought of them in a s specific way, and they're actually quite different to that. Dirk Nannis might be another. There's a lot of fastballers in there here. And I, you know, maybe it's something to do with fastballers. Those are probably the three off the top of my head that maybe come across. I'm trying to think of anyone else. 
Um, it's a really interesting question, James. I'm sorry, I can't give you a better answer there, but um, thank you so much for the question. All right, let's get across to the questions from my Substack. Abhishek says, these days batters score more runs than in the 90s, but uh, batter scoring 100 in times of was a macram can be paired to 100 scored these days. Uh, well, batters aren't scoring more runs in the 90s. The batting average is less in the last five years than the 90s. Uh, the period from 2000 to 2016, um, or 2017, sorry, um, certainly in those days, uh, batters were making a lot more runs than they were in the 90s and a lot more runs than they've made in the last five or six years now. So, yes, I think uh, I think in, in that period, it, it kind of goes back to the Michael Clark thing. I think it was a lot harder to average 50 in the 90s um, and average 50 in the last five years than it was between 2000 and 2017. Um, so, that's, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Um, so, so you, uh, you, you ask here if the, if the bowling is less. I don't think the bowling is less. I think we have a great crop of bowlers, but clearly something has changed. I think the wobble ball has changed. I think analysis has changed, fitness. Uh, we don't have as many overs bowled by, you know, fifth bowlers bowling between the 65th over and the 80th over anymore, partly because of fitness, partly because of the way that we structure teams. Um, so there's a lot of changes. But yes, you should contextualize. I think we have a lot of bowlers with incredible records from the 90s, for instance, and a lot of batters that you look at their averages and they don't look as good. The 80s is another perfect example of this. And I think it's fair to say that those two were more bowler-friendly periods. And then you have other periods, let's say the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, when batters made a lot of runs and bowlers didn't particularly dominate. So you probably have to you know, you have to factor that in when you're looking at um, batting eras. Um, sorry, eras of players. You can, I can't remember who it was, but there's a player that I looked at recently. Was it Kumar Sangakara, whose career almost perfectly overlapped with the peak batting era? Um, that's, we still know Kumar Sangakara would have been really good, but instead of averaging, you know, high 50s, does he average mid 50s or low 50s in another era? And, you know, Martin Crowe and Javid Meandad, uh, Viv Richards, those sorts of players. You know, if they played in the better batting eras, would their numbers be pumped up and vice versa for bowlers? Hope that ha helps you, Abhishek. Phil says, could it work if international teams only played ODIs every four years at the World Cup? The lack of familiarity with the format could make it more exciting. <coughs> yeah, um, I'm assuming you're not Phil Knight, the um, Nike executive, but yes, uh, Phil, uh, definitely. I think there'll still be friendlies and I think teams will still play warm-up events. There'll still be list day cricket, at least for now um i'm quite interested by that also like the idea of because i i suppose at its at its best i i odi cricket is my least favorite format but at its very best it's a combination between a test match and a t20 game which that would heighten it even more phil especially if you didn't know who your best players were coming in uh it could it could end up very good what what i worry about is we play no odis at all between the world cups and list A cricket disappears is, uh, you know, does the one does the one day World Cup just die a natural death? I suppose that would be my concern um, of that. But also think we need to get rid of a lot of bilateral cricket, so we might have to. Neil asks, what are the main reasons that bowlers deliver cross-seam deliveries? Okay, for YouTube, this will work. If you're listening to the podcast, good luck. Um, but essentially, when you're bowling a cross-seam delivery, um, when you release the ball, sometimes it can land on the seam and 
the seam will stand up and sometimes it'll land on the smooth bit. Maybe sometimes it'll land on the rough bit, depending on what you're doing with the ball. If it lands on the rough bit, it will react in one way. If it lands on the smooth bit, it should skid through. And if it hits the seam, it should bounce up. So you're giving yourself two slash three different trajectories once the ball has been bowled. So what you want to be able to do with a cross seam ball is bowl it really hard into the pitch and give it as much chance as possible to grip or slide. Um, and and then from then on in, you've, you've got a huge a, a advantage over the batters. Uh, it's particularly hard to play cross bat shots against the cross cross seam ball. Realized that was harder to say than I thought it was going to be. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how it works. And that's why it works. I think it's a fantastic ball. I actually don't think it's used enough. Uh, Keshev says, it's a shambles to see Slavic playing two test series in Exciter with the exception of uh, a couple of three test series uh, when they're quickly becoming possibly the best pace attack in the world. And the best part is they're still young and become goats. Yeah, yeah. Any chance you think the FTP can still be modified to get more tests? No. Don't think South Africa is going to play any more tests. I think even if the FTP was modified, um, I don't think they want to fit in more tests. Um, I think they understand their place in the world, and sadly it's a tricky position to be the fourth slash fifth biggest team, and they're playing a lot of good teams, and uh, they're focusing on their domestic tournament, which everyone will start to do. Uh, Amir says, do you have any opinion about the huge show made in the wake of Scott Boland's Ashes success uh, while there's a total lack of Indigenous representation in professional Australian cricket? Not to take away from his own Indigenous identity, but from what I know, uh, he only learned about it in adulthood. Yep, that's true. Uh, he already played for Australia. I don't know if he played for Australia when he found out, actually. I thought it was before he played for Australia. Um, unless it was, I, I can't remember now. I do remember when he found out, though. Um, maybe I'm out of line, but I feel like the spectacle around him had a strained edge giving Indigenous people from Indigenous communities and their way to be seen in the sport. Look, the first thing is that Scott Boland talks about it all the time. It, you're right, he found out about it late in life. So did Darcy Short, so did Scott Boland's brother. I'm trying to think there's another player recently found out about it late. Um, but Scott Boland has reconnected with it. Um, you know, Dan Christian is, I suppose, the the shining light the right word but the 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 main sort of pusher of um uh, uh in, indigenous culture within cricket and he's taken scott boland aside they had the indigenous side that all came over to play in england um you know it's a huge thing for all of them uh it is important to scott boland is the most important thing sorry i said important a lot there um you're right in saying that perhaps people from indigenous communities, which Scott Boland hasn't been traditionally part of, have been excluded from the game. But we do have Jason Gillespie, Dan Christian, Darcy Shaw, Scott Boland, um, Ashley Gardner. Am I missing anyone else? Of recent times who have come through. And so it kind of feels a bit silly to not make a point of those players now that we do have more indigenous players playing for Australia or playing professionally in Australia regularly. But yes, uh, you know, if you want the historical take, Australia basically did everything they could to make sure the Indigenous people didn't become a part of the sport. And if you watch Aussie Rules football, you realise what a mistake that was. And I think Scott Boland and Cricket Australia specifically pushing Scott Boland is just a part of of trying to right some wrongs. And I can see why from your perspective it doesn't look, you know, it, it is what it is, right? It's a guy who has quite fair skin, who found out very late in life, but Scott Boland does you know, he's a, he's a proud Indigenous man and it is part of his journey. And I don't think it's fair to say that he shouldn't be allowed to say it just because it's not the way that 
we would want it to be traditionally. But yeah, Deepak says, this summer has been historical for the Netherlands, four teams touring them. It's been incredible. I've commentated a lot of that too. Uh, they might not have won anything, but some of the matches were incredibly close. Yet they certainly should have won some matches um, of, of the ones that I commentated. Uh, it's great learning experience for them, but with the ODI Super League being scrapped in the next FTP cycle, teams will no longer be obligated to play all the teams, and the number of matches played by all teams will no longer be similar. I think associate teams will be worse affected by this. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't think the ODI Super League, as it was constructed, was good for overall cricket but I think it was fantastic for Ireland and the Netherlands. Um, and these are incredible summers for those two teams, and we might never see anything like it again. From that perspective, it's a real shame. It's also a real shame that Netherlands couldn't field their full-strength team for many different reasons all the way through. Um, but yes, I do think it will. I think in some ways they lost a lot of these games of this summer because teams finally knew about them and knew about their players and been thinking about it rather than playing them in one-off games. But that also means that Netherlands will know the weaknesses of their players a lot better than they might in associate cricket or, you know, in easier games. So I think it was fantastic. Uh, I was proud to play a small part in whatever I commentated. I'm trying to think what I commentated now, but, you know, the, the few games that, that I commentated. Um, I, you know, I just thought it was brilliant for cricket to see them playing the sort of cricket that they should be playing, the amount of cricket that they should be playing. So for that to disappear, I think it's a huge issue. And, you know, it's one of those small things that only people like me will, will care about. Um, and in a couple of years' time, we'll realise uh, what we've lost. It's not the first time that we've lost stuff when it comes to associate cricket. So, um, Grocky says, how do you think boards can be motivated, incentivized to use T20 domestic money to foster good things that cricket need like associate cricket development, expanding the number of test playing nations. Yeah. Uh, are the big three too self-interested, badly managed, corrupt, um, and other boards too bankrupt to ever get there? Um, well, the, the other boards don't want any of that. They don't care about any of that. Their job is, the Australian cricket board's job is not to make Papua New Guinea cricket big, right? That has to be the ICC. That has to be done formally. And if the other boards all don't get together and allow the ICC to actually run the game, uh, then none of that T20 money is going to come across. There is an argument going ahead that every time you hire a player from a country, you should be donating the same amount of money into cricket development in that country. Um, I just can't imagine anyone, any team owners or boards would ever do anything like that. But that is one way of looking at some of those sorts of things. Um, uh, you know, every there's, there's there's lots of great questions that you've asked here um, about all the uh, about. You know, women's cricket and creating a better world game. No one's in charge, Crocky. There is no one around to create a better world game. Cricket Australia, BCCI, Cricket Sri Lanka, you know, Cricket South Africa, Cricket West Indies. All these, none of these boards' um, job is to make cricket a, a game, and that's why we're in the position we're in now. Um, and their job is to make as much money from their local product. And they're going to continue to do that. They might do small things that help associates but I can't imagine any of them doing the major things because they've had 30 years to get their act together and they don't want to. They keep the ICCs, the people who provide the umpires and the balls, and because of that, uh, the game stagnates even as it is probably developing and growing quicker than it ever has before. Ankit says, given what is happening with schedules and boards vying for slots for their respective leaves, I was kind of curious about the state of broadcasting rights for test matches. Following the logic that the longer a test start, uh, 
the tests uh, last a lot longer, so they have more spots for advertising and other stuff. I do realize that not everyone watches a test match constantly. No, no. so this has always been the case, and with streaming rights even more so. One thing that a test cricket can do is, what are you talking about? Um, 35 hours of content, maybe more than that really, maybe 40 hours of content over five days. You can't get that in a T20 league. You can't get that in a one-day series, right? You also get repeat customers. You also get an older audience who are generally a little bit more wealthy and willing to spend stuff. And we know how to advertise to them maybe slightly better than we do to younger people. Um, uh, you get repeat customers, as I said before. Um, uh, I remember years ago, and I can't remember if these numbers are exactly accurate now, but I remember being told by TV executives that you get about 32 million people watching a very good India one day game sorry, T20 game, you get about 25 million people for a very good um, one-day game and you get about 8 million for a test match, right? Sorry, that wasn't a TV exec. That was someone who worked in commentary. And they were talking to me like that was bad for test cricket. And I was like, so you get 8 million on one day and you get 8 million on the next day. You get 8 million on the next... And, and, and I don't think we fully exploited that. So, yeah, I've said a million times um, that... There is absolutely no doubt that you can make a lot more money from test cricket than we currently do. It is not sold correctly. It is not marketed correctly. It is not fully exploited, um, uh, you know, financially, even close. TV executives laugh sometimes at how little they have to pay for, for TV rights of test matches, considering the kind of audiences they can get for them, how long they watch for, right? So, yes, uh, in, in every single way, um, there is so much more that can be done with test cricket. It's not going to be done there now because they kind of had their chance. Is my guess, unless someone does it separate to T20 as a outside league or something. Uh, Pushka says in one of his recent YouTube episodes, Ashwin mentioned the importance of first class cricket for T20 as well. He cited the example of the West Indies. The last generations grew up in first class era and became superstars in T20. The current generation has grown up in T20 and are not dominating like the last generation. I get his point, and it's certainly something they believe very strongly in the West Indies. And it's something that a lot of coaches and players talk about of you get tested so much more in Red Bull cricket that you develop and you have to have a more complete game, which will help you when you get to T20. The only thing I would say is that T20 cricket caught up with West Indies. They were the pioneers and eventually everyone else worked out, you know, the majority of their tricks and started doing what they were doing. Um, and so suddenly you had a situation where um, they are no longer special in that way. It's possible that Ashwin's right and I'm right and it's a combination of both or it's possible it's his theory is more right or my theory is more right. But I think that's a very easy thing to say and I think that I'd be shocked if there isn't a part of truth to it because I do look at first-class records when I'm looking at players um, for T20 because I want to know their overall quality. That's not to say if someone doesn't play test, you know, Obed McCoy's played three first-class games and averages 50 it's not the end of the world for me, but I do look at those things to have a look to get more information on them as players. And I do think it's important. But I also think that a lot of what happened with West Indies was they were on their own thinking about T20 cricket in a way. They're playing in all the leagues around the world. I think T20 cricket just kind of caught up to where they moved it to. Um, and, it, and, in, and part of the other thing was that I think when analysis came along, there are more weaknesses in... Um, that get exploited now. Whereas I think in the early part of that West Indies dominance, we probably didn't know as much about the individual weaknesses of players, which meant that um, 
if they were limited players, and even some of the players he's talking about, you know, Karen Pollard is a very good first-class player, but still a limited first-class player, that was probably easier to exploit those levels of players as um, more T20 cricket is being played with with West Indies and we get smarter the way that we plan for the West Indians and all that sort of stuff. I think it all plays a part. LJ? I think it's LJ. You'll made supreme overlord of global cricket with total executive power. What goes wrong? Well, I ruined the game in a heartbeat. Um, what would I do? What would I do that would go wrong? Um, I would probably bring in, I'd probably get rid of almost all bilateral white ball games. And I would bring in an overall league, which would probably lead to some kind of split because India, England, and Australia would probably do try and do what the Premier League football teams did with the or what the European football teams did uh, with their kind of league. Um, so yeah, I would probably do something that would help all cricket and would actually tear a hole in the middle of the game, probably. Oren says, given the excellent book by David Woodhouse about England's tour of 1953-54, maybe you think if there are other amazing series or um, uh, that haven't been talked about a lot. Look, yes. The problem is that if England aren't involved, the level of writing about that, some of these series is really bad. Um, say what you want for England, but, you know, having 93 newspapers is a huge advantage and having a better market so that you can send all these people around. Um, I, I still think, and, and I'm not sure there's a book on this, but two of the greatest innings of all time were played in the one series. Yeah, um, Hanif Muhammad and Garfield Sobers. Hanif Muhammad, the longest innings probably ever played in Test cricket, um, and Garfield Sobers broke the world record. Uh, was it his first hundred as well? I think it was. Those two, they they have might have even been in back to back Tests. Um, that's incredible. In some ways, it's kind of the birth of Pakistan and West Indies. Uh, maybe West Indies were good before then, but maybe that sort of next generation of West Indies cricket. But Pakistan, certainly, you know, a huge moment. Two incredible figures, um, two incredible parts of the game. That's off the top of my head, Oren, right? Um, and I did read your question before. I'm trying to think if there's any others. But yes, I think there are, um, without question. There's a series, I've talked about it quite a bit before. There's a two-test series between England and Sri Lanka in 2014, I want to say, uh, which... I still think was an absolutely fascinating series and I just don't think anyone will ever remember it. And that was involving England. So how many great series have we seen outside of that? I think Australia and South Africa played some absolute rippers, you know? So I, I do believe, yeah, that there is definitely out there some incredible stories that have not been covered, but a lot of it comes down to how much information you can get. Um, uh, we're probably at a period where a lot of that sort of 60s, 70s and 80s great series the players are maybe, um, you know, get, uh, moving on a little bit. So if you're going to want to write those books, you're going to have to write them quick. Um, and I think with David's book, if I remember correctly, he had a lot of stuff that was written down. People wrote a lot in their books about those series and all sorts of things. You have to be lucky with that sort of situation. So um, it's just tough, really. Uh, when I did my book on on the history of Test Cricket, I really wanted to talk about more and more of those series. But you do realise that, there's a reason why the major series are remembered, and it's partly because of how well chronicled they were, and it's also partly because of the markets. And then Nick uh, says, what do you think about this? Give both sides a one more TV umpire challenge, but then the umpires must make a decision on all line calls. This would cut down dramatically on worthless delays for stumpings and runouts where it is clear what the decision should be. 
Um, uh, well, the 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 runouts and stumpings is completely different from. Um, uh, oh, okay. So you're saying take away? No, I think because I think the runouts and stumpings we can actually get closer to the truth than we can for the LBWs and the court behinds and you know some of the other dismissals. So I would never take that away. Um, uh, I'm not too worried about that at the moment, but I can see what you're saying there. Uh, you've also said, um, uh, what are your favorite commentators uh, uh, and pundits? And what about your least favorites? Uh, yeah, I'm certainly not going to go into that, Nick. You need to find me in a bar for that. Um, I think I wrote an article a few years ago, which might hint at quite a few of those people. Um, but it would be career suicide for me as a commentator to do that. Um, although, to be fair, I've committed career suicide for quite a few times and I'm still kind of standing. But um, yeah, there's some bad commentators. I think that's fair. But one thing I would say is, yes, there are some bad commentators in cricket. I worry more about the training. I worry more about the production. I worry more about the editorial control than I do. You pick this player because he was famous um, and you bring him in and then he doesn't do very well, but he's still famous, so he sticks around for a little while. Train them. Make them better broadcasters. Ian Chappell took me through what they used to do in Channel 9. I've still never found another commentary system that is that good and that professional at training up their people. Some very good stuff that's been done for other commentary teams, especially in the last couple of years. But I look at the Americans. The Americans, you know, before a major game, they meet up with the captain and coach and have all these one-on-ones. They get all this information. They do all this preparation the day before. It'd be fair to say that most cricket commentators don't do that. And I know it's a slightly different situation and et cetera, but I do think there's a lot being left on the table that could be done. Uh, William says, what one change would you make to the 100? You mean other than making it 20 balls longer, uh, which would probably be my first change. Um, what one change would I make to the 100? Oh, I, I, I want it to be – I'll go back to the extra uh, balls, um, and then I would have played it from 10 overs at one end and 10 overs at the other end. And I don't care if we call them overs or whatever, um, but that would have been my – that would be my original one, and having watched the 100 – that would still be what I would do now. Uh, as Judd says, do team analysts have the pace filter when looking at runs scored against batter? Uh, yeah, it just depends. Um, you can also get a lot of stuff on places like Crick Sheets where the bowlers are filtered into medium, fast, fast, medium, and fast. Um, and then if you're working with CrickViz data or any sort of Hawkeye data, you'll also have the bowling speeds as well. Uh, but publicly, no. Sorry, Ash Judd. Andre says, how secure do you think Jason Roy's future is with England uh, with the World Cup two months away? He's having a pretty drab summer and the country is stacked with explosive openers. I, I kind of feel like they're going to back him until they get there. Um, I could be wrong on all that, of course, but that's kind of how I look into it um, ahead of time. Um, but but excellent question, Dre. I, I just probably haven't looked into it enough. I feel that McCullum will back. Yeah, I feel that McCullum will back Roy. Well, not McCallum, I suppose, Mott. Uh, that all England now, I suppose. We'll back Roy just because it is Jason Roy, but that doesn't mean that he will last the whole tournament. I think that's fair. I'm trying to think, did Bairstow replace uh, a Champions Trophy? So they have done something like that before. Anyway, thank you to everyone who's asked questions. We've got some in the room as well. 
Keshav, what's your question, mate? Hi, Jared. I actually uh, asked you a question on uh, that um, online thing as well today. So just mm-hmm. an extension of that. Um, do you think uh, with the new FTP, CSA has probably robbed Rabada of 100 deaths, 500 wickets? No. You think he'll still be able to get there? No. I think he'll play T20 cricket. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> As as I asked in the question previously as well, so part of the question was if South Africa ends up winning WTC next year or even, mm-hmm. you know, uh, continue with good show in test matches in the next uh, WTC cycle, any chance you see of uh, maybe, you know, uh, making those two test series at least three test matches somehow somewhere in the FTP? No, they're not making them any money, mate. You keep thinking that good cricket is what matters. Why do you think good cricket is what matters? It's about finance. This is about markets, right? It's not about good cricket. When we were doing Death of a Gentleman, Mike Atherton wrote this piece. We were we were at a press conference and we were asking some questions for the for the movie, and Athers wrote this big piece about how we're making a movie about the death of Test cricket. But actually, there's been a lot of great test matches played recently, so it doesn't make any sense to talk about the death of test cricket. And I went up to Athens afterwards and I said, you think good test cricket is what will save test cricket? Because that's not, no one no, no one who's in the boardrooms seems to care about good test cricket. They, they Literally, we spent a decade and a half with the flattest batting pitches of all time and no one gave a shit, right? They're not marketing it. So even if it's a good test match, okay, it gets some extra publicity doesn't get spun into the next one, does it? There's no promotion of test cricket. They're not trying to make money off of test cricket. doesn't matter if it's a good test match or a bad test match. Ultimately, it should. Um, and if they were running cricket correctly, it would. But as we sit here and talk to each other, it doesn't matter. They've already made their decision. Yeah, I mean, uh, I could understand against smaller nations, but, you know, up until, I think, 2018, 19... At least against Big Three, they used to have four test series, I vividly remember. And, you know, they, they used to have sellout crowds on uh, Boxing Day and New Year's test matches. So that was probably one of the factors I thought they might at least have longer series. They have... I oh, well, think just, just to stop you, just to stop you, they actually stopped playing the Boxing Day test at one stage to play a T20 one year, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They did, they did. So that tells you everything you need to know. Right, they were already they were already aware that they couldn't make money off Test cricket then, and that was years ago when they were still, as you said, probably the fourth biggest nation and not that far away. There's no money in South Africa. That's why all their players are leaving. They will continue to produce great players. A lot of them will play for South Africa. We hope. Hopefully, for some of them, will have long careers. We don't know what the future of international cricket is, but it seems to be going more towards franchise cricket. But. This whole idea that they play good cricket and that means that they're going to get more tests, I don't think that that stands that stands up anymore. It did up until maybe One Day Cricket took over. After One Day Cricket took over, I don't think playing good tests... Put it this way, it would be hard to say that Bangladesh hasn't improved and it would be hard to say that New Zealand hasn't uh, been brilliant over the last couple of years. Has Have they started getting four and te- five test match uh, series in New Zealand? And if Bangladesh started getting three and four test match series. No. No one cares. No one's no one's in charge of test cricket. There is no one in charge of test cricket to begin with, right? So it's not like there's someone there going, oh, they're getting good now. We'll give them more games. 
it's up to the boards and the boards don't care. How much of a hand do you think India can play in this? I mean, you know, all the talk of being the flag bearer of test cricket and how much they care about it with Virat Kohli and everything uh, that's gone down in the last few years. I mean, uh, also with the involvement of uh, India in the uh, new South African league, do you think if India would have been interested in playing them in three or four test matches, South Africa would have said no? No, if India would have done it, they would have done it. That goes back to your finance thing because they would make money then, right? But if Pakistan, if Pakistan said to them, we want to play you in a five-test series in South Africa, South Africa would be like, no, of course not. We can't afford that. We're not going to make our money back. Go away. Yeah, that's why I said India, because I remember in 2015, we used to, we, we played a four-test series against them. Then it cut, it got mm. cut down to three-test series, and now it's two. So yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, South African cricket still sells a little bit in Australia and certainly sells a little bit in England. Um, and so that's probably keeping them on with the, the three-test series um, that they have available to them. But if India said, we're going to play, we want to play a 17-test series against uh, against you in South Africa, South Africa would be like, great, when do we sign up? Because they would make money from that. But they're not making money from everything else. You've got to, you know, that it's not about good cricket. If, if it was about good cricket, the team who, the team who, New Zealand would have a lot more tests in this cycle than they did before, right? They would suddenly have an extra 50% of tests. And Bangladesh would have got a lot of extra tests. And maybe Sri Lanka would play less tests. Um, that's not how it works, mate. But thank you for your question. Or questions, because you asked some before as well, didn't you? Uh, I see there's a bunch of written questions in, in the chat. I will get to them. But if you do want to put your hand up um, and ask the exact same question, you know, feel free, because I have heard my voice more than I want to in the last 51 minutes. Tamim, are you here? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, mate, what's your question? My question is, what do you think is the future of the BPL? I BCB ruined it, like, from 2019, and then nationalized it somewhat. But it was a really good league in 2016 to 2018. What are your thoughts on the BPL? I mean, what you just said is completely true. They, you know, at that point, West Indian players specifically were picking the BPL. Did AB might have played there one year as well, over the Big Bash. It was setting itself up to be a really good league. And the, you know, the board, uh, Bangladesh board completely lost the plot, didn't they? And they, they decided to run it themselves. From the moment they ran it themselves, it's been a shit show. No one respects it anymore. I was getting offers to work in it all the time. As far as I can tell, they, I don't even know what the level of analysis is over there anymore. But everything seems to have dropped off. It's a real shame. And now the problem is, let's say they get their act together, Tamim, and they're like, great, okay, let's do this. What's, well, now they're going up against the South African and the UAE League who are starting ahead of them, right? I, I always thought the BPL was a really interesting league and could have been brilliant. And I fear now its best case scenario is being a very successful league in Bangladesh, but no one outside of Bangladesh giving two shits about it. Um, or... It becomes another feeder league to the uh, the IPL when they open up um, team ownership, which they'll eventually have to do now because they've shown that they can't make a great league without the team owners. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Bye. No worries. But yeah, it's, it's a real shame because, as I said, I think it would have helped Bangladesh cricket going ahead if, if they'd been able to do that. Uh, Baska, are you there? Yeah, hey, Jared. Long time. But uh, my question is about, I've asked a question about batsmen that people who actually spend a lot of time in first-class cricket and then make uh, the debut and are fairly successful. But we don't see that happening with bowlers, like people 
who come in a bit late and then I can't remember somebody who came, made a debut in the late 30s or the early 30s and then had a good long career uh, or uh, even if that was a spinner. So why do you think that is happening? Like people like Hasi and Bojis and all kind of uh, Badrina to India come in. But bowlers, I don't see anybody who has made that uh, transition. Do the logic of that, they know they go game better and uh, evolve over time and are more confident uh, is there. So why does it not happening to bowlers as such? Well, I think it does happen to bowlers. I mean, Rangana Harath is certainly one off the top of my head. Ryan Harris. How old was Vernon Philander when he made his debut as well? Um, Scott Boland, I suppose you could put in there of recent times. Akshar Patel. Uh, But the main reason it doesn't happen as late is because bowling relies on a certain amount of athleticism that declines quicker than the athleticism needed to bat. And so your window to be a really good bowler probably starts earlier and finishes earlier, and your window to be a really good batter probably starts a little bit later and finishes a little bit later. Um, Or actually, maybe it starts at the same time, but finishes a little bit later because you can... You can bat when your athleticism is gone. It's very hard to bowl once your elbow, wrist, finger, shoulder, whatever that may be, or your if you're a fast bowler, all your physicality goes. So, you know, once you're in your 30s, it's, it makes it much harder to keep that kind of physicality going. So I think that's probably the majority of, of, of the thing. Um, and then if you've, if you've bowled, I, I, I think that this is not the case for all bowlers, but I use Ben Hilfenhaus as an example of this. Um uh, perhaps someone like Sean Tate, maybe someone like Graham Onions, Ryan Sidebottom, of players who probably were picked after they should have been picked. And we probably never even saw the best of them or at the international level. Ben Hilfenhaus bowled 90 mile an hour outswing, which was unplayable for a couple of years. By the time he was playing for Australia, it was high 80s, but it, it was clear that it had already taken a toll on his body. And he, and he ended up being more of a plodding mid-80s bowler Um through the end of his test career. Sean Tate was definitely quicker before he played for Australia than uh, when he played for Australia. Uh, some of his early spells are, I, I don't know how people even stood at the other end to them, if I'm being honest. Uh, so, yeah, there's certainly, that. That is, that is that is a big part of it, I think, is the athleticism um, side of things. And you really, with bowlers, you probably want to pick bowlers the minute you think they're ready. Um, and with batters, you probably want to pick them once you know they're ready, but they're also able to make consistent runs. Bowlers have shorter windows, I suppose. So you want to make sure that you haven't missed out any of that window. So it's it's very often that a bowler will be picked on almost no first-class form. Um, and it's very rare for a uh, test batter to get picked on no first-class form. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks, Jared. No worries. Thanks, Wayne. I'll try and go through a couple of the written ones in here, but there's a ton. <laughs> Someone's speaking to me in Spanish. I probably won't be able to do that. Faisal says, what will be the best combined bowling attack of current bowlers, according to you? Five-man attack, two new ball bowlers, one first change, uh, seam bowling all-rounder and a spinner. Yeah, I think I'd probably prefer to have what one, uh, uh, two new ball bowlers, one first change specialist, and then probably a, one spinner who spins it one way and one spinner who spins it another way. That would probably be my ideal one. Uh, what else we got here? James says, I understand for tests, but why was Payne made ODI captain after Cape Town? Why not just go back to the normal red ball, white ball route? Uh, I think it's probably fair to say, I think it was probably fair to say that they were just shitting the bed back then, James, <laughs> um, on, in every single way. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't go too, too much into depth. They just thought that Tim Payne was their saviour, which is, of course, hilarious with what we know now. Um, 
you've put in here, would you say that Payne and Finch are the most fortunate players of modern Australia? I don't think Finch is. I think outstanding white ball player. Um, uh, may be fortunate to be a captain, but n- not not in any other way. It depends on how you look at Payne. I've said before, if you look at P- the way that Payne was batting before Dirk Nannis almost ripped his hand off in that stupid game, um, uh, whatever it was, uh, the, t- the T20 Invitational match, I think that at that stage, Tim Payne could have... I- I've written before that I thought he could have been captain of Australia leg- legitimately at that point. Uh, and I think he, I don't think he was quite thought of as an automatic choice, but I think he was on everyone's radar as someone who could have been that. He's fortunate in the way that his career went, but I suppose he was unfortunate in the fact that after that Dirk Nannis knock on his hand, he really wasn't the batter that he had been beforehand. You know, I remember Ricky Ponting talking about him being a, he could get in the team as a specialist batter after he, you know, and that was, I, I just don't think Ponting had seen enough of him after he'd been um, hit on the hand. He just wasn't the same player um, after that. And I, I don't know how much it bothered him psychologically or how much it was just a physical thing or whatever it was, but it seemed to stunt his development as a, as a first-class player. And that's why he didn't make any first-class hundreds. It's possible that people like me and Ricky Ponting were overrating him early on as well, but I thought he had a brilliant technique and I, I thought he could bat top order um, in first-class cricket, which meant he could bat you know five, six, seven easily in test cricket. And... Um, yeah, I was, you know, a huge fan um, of his. So he was unfortunate and fortunate at the same time. So I'm trying to think what's coming up. We've got a video on Bradman, which I think was supposed to come up this week and wasn't. And what else have I got? Uh, did a little bit on the baseball thing. So if you're listening live, that will be up shortly. We've got a big Stuart Broad project soon, uh, which we're having fun with. Thank you to everyone who asked questions today. Uh, it was fun to open up the Substack email uh, list and uh, allow everyone to do that. Uh, but thanks to the Patreon people as ever, as ever, and really nice room today. Lots of people in the room uh, for Spotify Live as well. Uh, one thing I would like to say is, you know, if you're enjoying the podcast, remember we've got the 99.94 network going. We've got India on 99.94. We've got England on 99.94. We've got South Africa on 99.94. I'm missing some. West Indies on 99.94. More teams to follow. The more that you support the podcast, the more podcasts that we can put out. We're obviously, we're hoping, you know, in the next couple of months to have all the major uh, test playing nations covered one way or another but it's a slow graft and and you know and we're still doing it but the more listens the more subscriptions the more reviews everything you do that all helps us massively if you follow the 99.94 twitter and instagram accounts that helps us and also just downloading the app so if you haven't downloaded the app do that you know it's getting more and more content on it all the time but a huge thanks to everyone who came in the room today huge thanks to everyone on substack and of course to the lovely patreon questions we'll talk to you again next time thanks for listening to wagon wheel on 99.94 you can now download us wherever you find your apps just by putting in 99.94 There'll be other cricket podcasts not actually hosted by me, and there'll also be some radio commentary coming soon. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do, and that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. 
Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Music